coming up on the Louis Diaz podcast. As most adventures t- happen, you know, things don't go according to plan. So, yeah, I was, I was really definitely like pretty light and naive, to be honest. And I, and I don't know, it's funny. I think sometimes you have to be a little bit naive. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't ever begin these adventures. Hi, and welcome to the Louis Diaz podcast, the podcast where you'll meet some of the most fascinating and incredible people from all walks of life. And together, we're inviting you in to be our special guest as we take you through some of their amazing experiences, adventures, and journeys. So sit back, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Louis Diaz podcast. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Louis Diaz podcast. Today, I've got a super cool guest on. I can't believe that I'm actually talking to the real life person after listening to the audio book and getting all deep and personal into that for this whole entire week of mine. I want to welcome Sophie Mattison, who is the author of, you know what, I just, I always do this. I always forget the most important thing, The Crossing, (laughs) a memoir of love, adventure, and... Finding your own path. Finding your own path. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Based on the real life story of you actually crossing the continent of Australia from west to east with your five camels. And let me see if I can remember this. Jude, Delilah, Mac, Charlie and Clayton. Woohoo! Perfect. Yay. Nailed it. Thank (laughs) God I got something Welcome to the Louis Diaz podcast. Really great to have you here, Sophie. Amazing to connect with you. Thank you. No, it's great. It's great that we could finally make this work. Like you said, we did a little bit of toing and back and forth messaging and it's, you know, it's great to be here. Thank you. My pleasure. And, I, and I'm mindful that, you know, that you're probably really at this stage of your, I guess, post-crossing life, uh, probably really well-versed in media and, you know, you've probably done a few podcasts by now and, and media appearances. So one of the things that I was really mindful of trying not to do was be the same as everyone else. <laughs> Oh, no. It's amazing how many, you know, everyone is does seem to be different and everyone has different interview styles. So it's really, and I think the podcast is so nice because you get to, rather than film and TV where I've had experience where they're kind of like, and why did you walk across the country with camels? And you kind of like only just start replying and then they're like, okay, and we've got to wrap it up and see you later. And that can be a bit frustrating because you only sort of, touch on the surface whereas a podcast is a little bit a little bit nicer a little bit more long form yeah that reminds me someone you'll know of actually lucy barnard Mm. um i had her on my podcast i love lucy and um i remember watching her pre-podcast um stuff you know anything that she could give me obviously her blog and then there was some interviews that she had done on different channels that were up on youtube right and i remember this one particular interview with a network here in australia where they asked her a question and she got real enthusiastic and talking about the different breeds of dogs and i could just you could just (laughs) see the interviewers like there was a two hosts and they were kind of like both looking at each other going wait we weren't ready for this they, they, they couldn't <laughs> too, actually, yeah, they weren't ready for the too whole much okay. detail. Yeah, let's cut to the break. They didn't have a break ready for it. So, um, 
Yeah, no, really great to have you here. And and on that track as well, I did listen to another podcast that you did where like the, literally the first question was why. And that was like... Oh, the most dreaded question. And I know, and I think Lucy and I, and Lucy actually came to um, the day that I arrived, I, the day that I finished my big trek across the country. So so um, that's how I know Lucy. Yeah, she's a, she's a great friend. Um, but yeah, it's, it's sort of among adventurers. I think it's almost our most hated question. The question, why, why, why? <laughs> it's so funny that you mentioned that because, um, you know, I didn't know, but in that interview it was the first question and I could tell it was asked almost antagonistically and that it was taken a little bit jarringly by you. And I didn't know you, I'd never heard you before, but I could just sense in your voice that it was like, there was something there that just you know, didn't, didn't mm. sit right with you. And, and so this week I was like, Oh, Hey Lucy, I text Lucy. And obviously she's on her walk. I was like, Hey yeah. Lucy, guess what? I'm, I'm chatting with Sophie this week and, uh, you know, any tips? And she goes, whatever you do, don't ask why. <laughs> so good. Emphatically like in text, <laughs> you know, you know how you can read tone in a text message? Like- yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's so, I mean, the why question, it's so funny. It's, it's just that there is always so many layers to why. Yeah. There's so many layers to why, but then at the same time, I always sometimes feel like being antagonistic back and being kind of like, well, why not? Mm -hmm. Why do I have to have a reason? You know, can't you just decide that you want to do this cool epic adventure like Lucy is and walking, you know, from one end of the Americas all the way to the other end? You know, can't you just, I don't know, come Mm. up? And, And sometimes as well for me, I sort of think now back on it, it seems, I guess, for people looking on the outside, it's kind of like, whoa, how did you come up with this crazy idea that you wanted to walk across the country with camels? And now it's such a big idea, but I actually, to be honest, cannot even remember a single moment when that idea came into play. It was such a sort of series of events, you know, that sort of lead you to coming up with an idea and then maybe at first it's a little bit innocent and then it's kind of like, oh, I've got my head stuck in this now. It looks like I'm definitely going to be going and then it gets bigger and bigger and almost out of your control in a way. Yeah, but I, I do feel like you were really great at explaining it in the book that it was a culmination of, you know, decisions and events and curiosities and, you know, see how this goes test and learn Mm. kind of things that got you to that but then there's that whole taking that actual leap of faith and doing it and you do Mm. and again you do reference that in the book you you talk about like you know most people never actually start those crazy ideas that they have Mm. yeah and it's true and I think I don't know for this in some ways yeah it sort of felt like once I had got my camels which came from the wild and once I had sort of gotten to the situation where I was starting to train them and getting all the equipment together it almost felt like I was on this at that point in time you know and that was a full year before I even set off it almost felt like I was on this invisible treadmill and it was kind of like okay I'm on the treadmill and the treadmill's not stopping and I'm just gonna have to keep on keeping up with it because there's no getting off at this point like I was I became I was that deep I guess in my fascination of camels and the idea of doing this big trip across the country that there was there was almost no way that I could pull out even if I wanted to yeah I do love that I do love that but I'm mindful that I might be leaving some people behind because there's going to be some listeners of mine that have never heard of you and there's going to be people that you know that have heard literally everything that you've done 
and have done the, read the book, listened to the audio book, got your autograph uh, and all of that. But just for the people that know less about you, can you give us a quick just like a elevator pitch on the whole thing just so that uh, we can bring them up to speed? Mm, because I yeah, feel like we're leaving course. them behind. <laughs> of course. So my background originally was actually in film and TV. And the last time I was working in that industry would have probably been 2016, I think. And then all of a sudden, kind of completely out of nowhere, my life took a strange left-hand turn, shall we say. And I ended up getting into the world of camels. And it was a little bit by accident. I was kind of feeling like I wasn't quite sure what my direction was. I didn't quite know whether I still wanted to be in film and TV. I didn't know what I wanted to do in it. And I sort of, I felt like I just needed a break. And And I'd always loved working with large animals. I grew up riding horses. And I discovered that a good friend from high school, her auntie owned a camel dairy. I thought, well, that's bizarre. But for some reason, something sort of struck my interest. And I ended up heading out there to meet these camels. And I just fell in love with them just from the get-go. I thought they were fascinating animals. And so fast forward... God, another four years on from that. And I thought I was just going to be taking this short break from film and TV and it ended up being four years worth of delving into learning more and more and more about camels to the point where I became that obsessed with them that I decided I wanted to do a big adventure and it seemed like the right time in my life as well. I was 30, uh, probably 31 by that point, and I didn't have a partner. I'd broken up with my long-term boyfriend At the time, I didn't have kids. I had nothing holding me back. And I thought if there's ever a point in my life where I'm going to get to do a big adventure, now's the time. So I sort of seized that opportunity and my idea was to get five camels from the wild, train them myself and then set off from the widest point of Australia basically to the widest point. So that was Shark Bay on the coast of WA all the way to the east coast, Byron Bay. And, yeah, and that was my my huge and amazing adventure and I never expected to write a book after that, but I have been gotten to the lucky position where I was, yeah, able to write a book and my book is called The Crossing, like you talked about in the audio book too. Mm, yeah, wow. And, Sorry, that was a longer than an elevator pitch. I've got to work on cutting that down. <laughs> the TV crews would have hated it. No, not for me. <laughs> you, you, you know that I loved every word of it. You know, I think you, you're really good at giving context to people. And, you know, I, I feel like for a bunch of my audience who are, you know, sitting on the fence of, you know, taking up the mainstream responsibilities of life or choosing that adventure People will sort of always want to know what what was the context, you know, and how did it happen? And for some people, you know, when you see, when you read the book or when you listen to the audio book and you see the amazing photos that are taken throughout or at the end of the adventure, you forget that it's really simple catalysts that get someone Mm. to that first step and that there's like a hundred other steps that they take before it's, you know, you've got that final result, that romantic picture of them out in the desert with that camel that's on the cover of that book. So Yeah, 100%. You know, I, I think so many people think you just sort of like wake up and just have this epiphany of this idea. But yeah, like you said, it, it's this whole series of events that lead you there. And I sort of almost think about it like life throwing you out this trail of breadcrumbs and you just decide to to follow it and you know and it and I'm guy I remember at the time it made like absolutely no sense it was kind of like what am I doing driving at the time you know when I first started the camels I was driving an hour and a half every day to go and rake camel shit 
you know, <laughs> and I'm thinking, what, where is this leading me? Why am I deviating from my career? But it, it, you know, I think sometimes you have that gut feeling and it, and it, and it felt right. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I just wanted to get to as well was that the plan originally was to do it over a year, right? Mm. And that's yeah. the, that's the part that we kind of might glaze over is that yeah I think that that you should add that to your elevator pitch that you want that you're not so yeah. elevator pitch that you were actually planning on doing it over a year and then that- yeah and then and then as most adventures t- happen you know things don't go according to plan so yeah I was I was really definitely like pretty light and naive to be honest and I and. I don't know. It's funny. I think sometimes you have to be a little bit naive. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't ever begin these adventures. And and I thought, yeah, nine months. I can do this in nine months. I think I, I'd read a few other guys who had done trips with camels and I don't know, I guess I based it off their their adventures and I thought, yeah, I could, yeah, I could probably get across the country in nine months. Anyway, I was an absolute idiot. <laughs> I had no clue how hard it was going to be. And it was probably about two months in that I started to realize that I was being incredibly optimistic. And that was because nothing went right, basically. The, fir- the whole first month out of the trek, it was really tough conditions actually right from the start. So Western Australia was at the tail end of a really long drought and it was dry and it was horrible country. And the main reason why that affected me was because I don't carry any feed on the camels on the trek because they're such big animals. They've got to kind of eat along the way. You just, it's impossible to carry feed for them. So I was relying on whatever the country had in store for the camels to be able to graze. And there was just very little feed out there and they were drastically dropping weight. Uh, and they were getting tired and thirsty right from the get-go. And I was getting tired and grumpy right from the get-go because it was hot still, the flies were horrendous, the camels were wandering huge distances after we'd already already walked all day to try and find feed. So I rather than stop pulling up at camp and, you know, kicking back and putting my feet up, I was then walking several extra K tailing my camels so that I didn't lose them basically at the end of the day. And that was all on top of having to load about 500 kilos worth of gear on and off their backs morning and night. So it was really exhausting right from the get-go and we just weren't making the Ks that we needed. And the thing is about Australia is obviously it's so hot in the interior of Australia, so arid, sorry, that during those summer months, you, there's, you know, it's almost impossible to cross Australia. So I knew that I was going to be pushing it to get across in the wintertime. And I realised about two months in that that was never going to happen and that I was going to have to then split the trip into two years. And so I'd have to walk that winter, try and make it to sort of halfway across Australia. And then I'd have to wait out that summertime and then I'd have to set off again the next year. So it was kind of like I originally I had this thought that this that this adventure that I had plotted, you know, was going to be this neat little package in a year. I'd have it done. I'd be in Byron by Christmas time. And then it was pretty devastating to suddenly realize that, oh, my God, it's going to stretch out into this two year thing. Mm. Yeah. Devastating, I guess, in a way, but also it feel it felt to me. And it feels to me even more so listening to you now that it was like a blessing in disguise almost. Yeah, 
Absolutely. You know, I look back at it now and I think like there is, it was the best thing that happened to me during the trip. Although like it totally didn't, like I said, it totally didn't feel that way at, at the time. But looking back on it, it was the thing that cre- it created the most amazing changes. For one, it was kind of like once I had made that decision, all of a sudden I calmed down and I stopped sort of being on this hamster wheel of kind of like, Every day we've got to get up, I've got to load the camels, we've got to do this many Ks, you know, and I was so strict on the Ks and everything. We've got to do this many Ks and I've got to unload and then I've got to, you know, tail the camels while they graze and get to sleep and I've got to have enough sleep before so I can get up the next day and do it all over again. And all my attention was on just kind of moving forward in these kilometres to reach Byron Bay. And then all of a sudden when I realised that I sort of didn't have this time limit on me, I sort of thought, oh, It doesn't matter if I only do 10Ks today because we find a really great patch of camel feed, then stuff it. We'll just do 10Ks. And this whole sort of slowing down business was just, yeah, it was amazing because I, I, I started to see the details and the landscape. And then, like you said, you know, when I when I braked over the summertime, I gave the camels all of this time after they had got, you know, incredibly skinny on the first half of the journey. They then got incredibly fat during the uh, summer break, which was great. And we went at it again the next year, sort of refreshed and a lot happier, I think. Yeah, I love that. It's like that whole hamster wheel that you mentioned. It's almost ingrained in us as general humans, let alone adventurers, because I feel like adventurers really need to plan things. Otherwise, it could be life or death. But of course, you do want to have plans and you do want to stick to them because it could potentially be life or death. But I love how your journey was walking this tightrope of like on the one hand, you're falling into your need to have these plans and some kind of structure to stick to. But on the other hand, it's just surrender. It's that Mm. need and it's that teaching you life almost or the adventure teaching you that how to surrender to the circumstances. Definitely. yeah, my it was it was definitely a massive lesson in in that. And yeah, you're right. I've had people, you know, when I was out in the Great Victoria Desert, I remember I, I really sort of held on to that obsessiveness with the numbers and Ks and so on. And you know, I was I was obsessing over. I think maybe because you know you have so much time and space, you have no one to talk to. You know, you have a lot of time just in your own head as you're walking. So you, yeah, you do you grasp hold of anything that you can kind of control. And in my head, I was going over, you know, how many how many liters of water we have, how many liters of water I've packed on this camel, what they're carrying, how much they're gonna drink when we get to camps, and then where, how many k's to my next water point. And I remember someone said I was telling someone this, and they said, "Oh, but yeah, I'm sure you have to do that. Like that's important for your adventure." And you're right. I guess you know, there's definitely a certain amount of planning that you that you need to do for sure, you know, to to be safe and to just be, I guess, you know, a responsible adventurer in a way. But then I took it to like the next level, you know, and I was trying to explain to them. I said, no, I, I had written all of these numbers down. I had written them down, but I still went over them again and again and again, obsessively so. And yeah, my trip was such a, a lesson in, and I think the camels themselves almost helped me with this. It was such a such a lesson in surrendering and going with the flow of nature because really with them walking with camels you can't be regimented in a way because like I said it it, uh where you camp is you can't just sort of plan your camps out your camps have to revolve around where the good feed is for the camels so even that in itself 
makes you become more fluid and you have to sort of go, okay, well, yeah, like I said, you know, we might have only walked 10K today, but there's a great amount of feed here. So I'm going to stop early so that they can have a, a good munch to eat. And it was also, you know, yeah, about having to sort of go with all of those flows of nature, you know, deal with it when it rained, enjoy what the rain brought in terms of all this, this fresh new feed and growth and learn to work with the temperatures too. You know, there was one point I started walking, the days got really hot as I was getting towards the centre of Australia. So I was sort of coming into that summer break and, and out in the desert, it was September time and the days got really hot all of a sudden. And I started walking at night time. And again, that was that kind of learning to be flexible and to work with the flow of nature, I guess. Enjoying the episode so far? Be sure to follow us and leave us a review on whichever podcast platform you're listening on. Thanks and enjoy the rest of the episode. Mm, Yeah, it was one of my favorite parts of the book as well. And there's so many elements to this journey, like like it says on the cover, love, adventure and finding your own path. And I think for me personally, it was kind of unexpected for me to find an element of nostalgia in it for myself because two things, I love the film. Lawrence of Arabia, coined as a miracle of a film. And obviously, if anyone knows that film, it's it's a lot about adversity and crossing big deserts as well in Africa. And then there's the fact that I've actually been to Central Australia myself and remember the first time I got off the bus somewhere between Port Augusta and Kings Canyon, which is a long stretch. I don't know exactly where the, the bus mm. stopped. But remember the bus stopping and me getting off and just walking to the side of the road while everyone was getting soft drinks from the esky and getting food, me just sort of walking off the side and looking at the vegetation and seeing how green it was, which is something you mentioned at one point in the book as well, where you got to somewhere where it was just really green and just thinking, wow, like this is not what I expected to find here. And so that when I went back to the book and going back to your book and listening to you talk about, you know, all of the things that you learned and the things that you discovered, the terrain and the vegetation and the... I just found myself in this constant state of nostalgia while I was listening. Mm. Yeah, it's so true, isn't it, that we don't, I think, you know, a lot of Australians just have this concept about what the outback is like. I don't know, yeah, we have this vision of it being sort of desolate and empty, but there's so many complexities to it. And, yeah, and I think that's that's the the beauty when you do a trip like mine or or you just go travel to the outback for the first time as you start to sort of see, oh, Actually, it's not what I thought it was going to be. There's there's so much life there and in so many different forms. You know, there is times where it does look dry and desolate and empty and then there's other times where it, you know, all of a sudden will flourish and there's there's greenery and succulents and flowers and, you know, all sorts of bird life. So, yeah, it's amazingly diverse. Yeah, it is. And even to the point where you got to Coobapedia and you described it, you know, you, you were so good at describing it. And it made me wonder because, you know, obviously you said that you, you got to write a book at the end of it all, which is great. But I felt like, geez, the details so good that I felt like you were writing while you were on the adventure. Am I in, on the right track here? Uh, no, I mean, you know, like, no, because I actually never thought that I would write a book at all. I was never, it was never in my consciousness when I did the trip. You know, I, I really... I guess it, the trip was such a personal thing. It was something I, I really wanted to do 100% for myself. And like I said with all the, you know, the people that contacted me through social media and stuff, I think it in, in some ways 
came as a shock because I would have been content if no one ever knew about it and I just did it. But then obviously, you know, you, you, you know, I did make the choice to put images on Instagram. So you are kind of, you know, in some ways writing your own destiny there. But yeah, so, so the book crept up totally as a surprise. But when I came to writing, it almost came so naturally because those visions were so clear in my head and maybe as well, but because I'd come from that background of film and TV and photography, really what the trip did in a way was actually reignite my love of, of photography and, and those images that are in the book, you know, they're all my photos and I used to set the camera up on a tripod and just rolling through, clicking away, taking pictures and then I'd go about my day because it was the only way that I could get nice photos of me on the trip being out there on my own and yeah, so I loved the photography aspect of it and I guess probably those images kept those memories and that description sort of right there ready ready to happen when I came to writing the book. But thank you, yeah. No, 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 no. Well done. And thank you for explaining that because, yeah, I was just listening going, this can't have been written after the fact. It's too detailed. There's too much. Even emotionally, it was like there. In that moment, like dear diary <laughs> moments, I'm I'm picturing like stop in oh, oh, the camera. That's good to hear. That's good to hear because I do think when you write, you almost have to go in. It's this, it can be almost this really private thing where, and I actually wrote a lot of the book really early in the morning. I have this thing where I find that I write best almost like when it's still like I would get up at three thirty sometimes, and I would write from four thirty till like seven o'clock in the morning in the dark. Just because you sort of in this, I don't know, dark space when it feels like the rest of the world is all just sleeping around you, you can kind of really connect back to that memory and re-feel those feelings again. Yeah, well, I was kind of hoping that once now that you've got back to civilization, quote unquote, that you would be somewhat <laughs> relatable. But I think even just there, like getting up at 3.30 in the morning to write, uh, you know. <laughs> I know you're really lucky that you're getting me on a podcast at 7.30 at night because this is this is my normally I'm useless past like, God, even 5 p.m. I'm useless. No, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that you're here. And I feel like also we've sold a little bit of the journey short, although we, yeah, we did drop the breadcrumb and it's on your cover that it's a memoir of love. And we haven't touched on that at all. Like how, <laughs> how have we got 30 minutes in without even talking about any of that? Because the other part of the nostalgia piece just for our audience is that a lot of what you were going through is stuff that I felt myself I've been on the other side of that and it was weird listening to it from like a feminine perspective and you know a complete stranger almost but it was just because it was so I don't know just so real but yes we have somehow danced around the whole love piece and you know what I want to do, actually? I don't want to just put you on the spot with that and just throw over to you after just saying that. What I'd love to do <laughs> is actually read the quote that you open up your book with. Do you mind if I do that? Yeah, no, absolutely. Go for it. It was a, a quote by Soren Kierkegaard and you open up your oh, book gosh, with it. Oh, gosh, you say that much better than I would have known how to say that. Go on. <laughs> I guess no, you... no, no, no. You, you tell me, that you, you read out the quote. I was going to say you'd pronounce his name much better than I would have actually even known. What I actually name. have a friend with that surname, believe it or not. Oh, there you go. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, above all, do not lose your desire to walk. Every day I walk myself into a state of well-being and walk away from every illness. I have walked myself into my best thoughts and I know of no thought so burdensome that one cannot walk away from it. And thus, if one just keeps on walking, everything will be all right. 
God, that's a good quote. It's a beautiful quote, isn't it? Yeah. I I actually read another book. I think it was actually in, there's a great travel book, if anyone has read it, called The Voyage of Jack de Crow. And I had read that book and I had written, sometimes I, I, I write, you know, things that I love, quotes that I love in, in my diary. And I'd written that in my diary long, long before the camel trek. And like you said, in that writing process, I did, you know, a bit of that dear diary. I did actually go back through old diaries to try and get an idea of how I was feeling at the time. And I stumbled upon that quote and I thought, oh, my God, that is so applicable for my trip and my adventure because, yeah, I just I felt so much like it had been to go into the love aspect. <laughs> I The first half of the book is a lot about my ex-boyfriend, Sam, and the breakup that I had with him which kind of came as I as I got into camels. And so then the beginning of the trek was a, a lot about dealing with that and letting go of that huge relationship in my life and a lot of obsessing over that too, you know. And as anyone who's been through a breakup knows, it's, you know, they can be, they can take a long time to heal from, you know. And I had a lot of days walking, thinking about it, you know, and a lot of space and time to overthink it too. And yeah, so that's the sort of first half of the book. And then the second half of the book, another character comes into play and and that's my now current boyfriend, Jimmy, who is an absolutely unexpected love interest. So uh, that was another another huge highlight, like we were saying, of the fact that I split the trip into two years because if I'd never split the trip into two years, I never would have met Jimmy. So it was over the summertime and I had adjusted my camel's uh, in the Flinders Ranges, and I had been out in the desert for about three months straight, barely seeing anyone. And I'd finally put the camels in a paddock, which had been this sort of massive relief in a way because it was it was this huge. I love them to death, but it's like carting five big kids across the country and it's kind of like their safety is 100% your responsibility and you just round the clock day to day looking after them. And so eventually I got them into this paddock that they were going to be spending the summer and I sort of waved goodbye to them and it was this huge (laughs) relief of of not having to look after them for a little bit of time. And um, to celebrate, I, I took myself out for a coffee and I was in this tiny little outback town of 50 people it's actually where I live now, <laughs> tiny little town of 50 people. I remember thinking, oh, what a weird place. Who would live in a town like this? <laughs> and um, anyway, I, I walked into this little bakery and this guy served me. And I remember getting all really nervous because I hadn't met anyone in almost, you know, six months, let alone someone that was sort of roughly my own age and a bit good looking. And, uh, yeah, we, we hit it off and we became friends and, um, and then quickly became more than friends. And I thought at the time, I thought, oh, well, this is a, this is a fun summer fling with this guy. And, but obviously I'll walk away into the sunset with my camels, but Jimmy wasn't going to let that happen. And he ended up driving about 16,000 K back and forth, back and forth to see me every time I stopped. This podcast, by the way, if you're listening, this podcast is full of spoiler alerts. Like if you're hoping... (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) To read the book or listen to the audio book, please do so because you're going to get like the full detailed version there. But we're kind of... No, no, we're not ruining it for you at all. Keep listening. (laughs) 
just giving you little little tasters, little tasters, and but yeah, please read the book for the bigger picture. <laughs> ah, yes, definitely read the book for the bigger picture. And speaking of pictures. Obviously, I, I listen to the audiobook because I'm always on the run and I'm also a slow reader. And also, you, you just mentioned that there's a bunch of pictures in there. So I have to now go and buy the book in order to <laughs> make sure I can see those images that you referred to earlier. But back to the whole love thing, you know, I think for me with the whole Jimmy thing, it kind of got to a point where I was... It was bizarre. Your story, you know what? This whole adventure is so bizarre. There was a bunch of, there's some esoteric kind of moments that you had in it. And maybe I'll start with that. And I think episode 25, I think I, that was the one that I did with Martin Grohovsky, who's this Bulgarian filmmaker. And he was talking, he talks about how he goes into these little towns. He might end up in a little town somewhere in the middle of nowhere in like Eastern Europe or some part of China that no one really knows about. And he told us this one anecdote about this old man in this town that told him he was very sad that people call it where they live, the middle of nowhere, because to them, it's everything. That's everything they mm. need. And, uh, you know, in a way, I love kind of how uh, you just described, you know, the town that you once stumbled upon and thought who would live here. And now you're actually living there yourself. <laughs> now I live here. <laughs> but then, Absolutely. Yeah. You never know where life is going to lead you. Exactly. And Martin also talks about you visiting towns in Africa where, you know, they believe in witches that cast curses on people as well. And I thought, how bizarre listening to the book. And I'm going to, I'm going to come back to love. Just bear with me. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I wasn't fully concentrating. Maybe I was kind of hopping on and off a tram during this time, but I heard something about a morning muesli ritual, like you were, you would give muesli or oh, something yes. to the, to the, the <laughs> Great, you had to bring up the one thing that makes me sound nuts. <laughs> no. no, there's probably multiple. There's probably multiple things in the book that make me sound nuts. But yes, you know, you did. You did hear that right. You know, a, a lot of people. A lot of people would ask me. They're like, "Oh, so do you talk to your camels while you're walking?" And I'm like, "Yeah, of course." Like, I kind of feel like that's an obvious one. Absolutely, I talk to my camels. I'd be nuts not to, right? <laughs> But yeah, no, I started, and like I said, it was it was it was at the time that I was crossing through the Great Victoria Desert, and it was that similar thing of the like I said, I started obsessing over K's, and I think you just become. It it made me appreciate actually how superstitious a lot of Indigenous cultures are, because I think when you spend a lot of time. I don't know, immersed in nature, you do tend to become kind of superstitious about stuff. Uh, I'm not even sure if I can fully explain that. But, yeah, I, I started this thing where, I mean, I would get senses and I, I'd sort of been picking up on this. When I lived out at Uluru and I and I started working with the camels out there, I, I met a guy out there, Greg, and he would be become a friend of mine and he would help me transport the camels from Uluru to the start line of my trip. And Greg was an Aboriginal guy and um, and he had started to talk to me a little bit about, you know, these spirits and these Aboriginal spirits in certain places. And I definitely had these strong feelings when I was was at places around Alice Springs and, and even around the rock and Catajuda itself. And yeah, and this sort of carried on on my trip too. Like I would have camps where I could really have this sort of sense that there was this spiritual presence or these spirits watching me. And, and so I started doing this thing where I would have muesli every single day and I would always have a ton of muesli and I would get to the point where I'd like, I couldn't finish just two spoonfuls or something. 
And so every day I'd be like, I can't believe I can't finish these two spoonfuls. And I started like sort of throwing out these spoonfuls. And then it sort of got to the point where I was kind of like weirdly started to become like, oh, well, maybe it's like this sort of like offering to the spirits of the camp. And so I started every day then when I wanted to finish my whole music, I was like, oh, no, I've got to I've got to leave these two spoonfuls because they've got to be for the I've got to appease the 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 camp gods. And it was nuts. And I look back on it now and, and you know, in the context of sitting, like you said, in civilization in quotation marks, it sort of seems like what a weird, crazy thing that I did. But at the time when you're in your own space and in your own head and and surrounded by that vastness of, of nature, somehow it does make sense. Yeah. For me, it makes sense that it makes sense because I think – at some point when you're out there alone and, and granted that you were, you know, with your family, the big kids, as you, as you called them. Yes. Um, and, I, and I love that term that you coined, home is where the herd is as well. But you're kind of, you know, from a human perspective, you were alone. And I love that, you know, when we have finally succumbed to the aloneness of our situation and, I mean, you wrote really well about the beauty of the outback and the moon and the stars and, and the land as well. It was like over time it sort of wore you down and you've got this appreciation for how special it is and how small maybe you are in the context of it and that believing in something greater and invisible that could be you know playing a part in your adventure makes a lot of sense after a while like you know mm. like something's out there looking out for you yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, maybe because, like I said, like you're in this environment where you can't control anything, you can't control the weather and, and so you sort of have to give into it. Maybe that's where it starts to come from, that there's this, you know, I don't know, a higher power or whatever. And But, you know, yeah, it, it was, it was a, a strange thing. But I do, I really appreciate that time I spent alone uh, like you said, looking back on it now, I think that that is something that's really special about Australia and special about the outback and, and, you know, having done a lot of other travel around the world, I think that's so unique that we have these places in our country that are so untouched and are so remote. I mean, yes, I'm sure there's parts of, you know, northern Canada and, you know, Siberian places that are similar, but very few countries these days have so much wide open uninhabited space and it was terrifying at first don't get me wrong you know when I first set foot out into the desert you think you're going to love being out there alone and then you start to realize actually it, it's incredibly intimidating and I have this memory when I first went out into the desert it was a gas pipeline um, for some mining and I was walking along this pipeline track and, you know, normally you sort of think, oh, you know, wouldn't it be nice to, to be out, you know, away from all human artefacts and just out there in, you know, pure nature. But because I knew where I was going and because I knew just how remote I was going to be and how far away, it actually, for some strange reason, this pipeline became this incredible security blanket. And I felt like it was this, this one string that was attaching me to society, I guess, or humans in general, even though it was this ugly mining pipeline, it just felt like it was something human, I guess, something that I knew. And then when I had to leave that pipeline, I felt incredibly like I was just 
out there in this huge, vast space. And, and when you're in that space on your own for a long period of time, you can start to feel like, you, yeah, you're the, only, you're, you're the only one alive, you know, like you're the only one alive on this planet. But that feeling is really special in a way too, I think, because, yeah, it, it makes us realise how incredibly unimportant we are in the grand scheme of things in nature. And I think that's a really humbling experience because, yeah, nature is this huge, vast space and our little lives don't really matter that much and yeah that's that's a, a humbling feeling and I and I came to love that in the end you know by the end of that three months I didn't want that pipeline anymore you know I, I loved being out there you know alone under the stars knowing that there was there was no one else for hundreds of k's around mm, yeah I got the nostalgia bits again because I saw a very similar pipeline while I was on that bus I think somewhere between Coobapedi and Port Augusta there was just looking out to the left which was towards the great Australian bite of the bus there's yeah. just this pipeline that was just constantly there and I was like when is this thing going to go away how the hell did yeah. they build this I I reckon I know that exact pipeline, actually. That's a water pipeline that goes all the way to Sejuna from, like, the Murray River. It's amazing. It goes a long way, that it's pipeline. wild. I was just like, just every time I looked at the bus, it was just there. Um, <laughs> and I love that. But, yeah, I love everything you said just then. And I'm still sort of tying it back to the love thing because we fast track all the way to you are somewhere near the Queensland border and you meet this character. God, there's so many characters in this country and in your book as well. So many characters that you come across. It's just remarkable. Uh, Phyllis, and Phyllis does a tarot reading for you and then... You know, she she's asking you to to look at this one card, and the meaning that you deduced from that card for me was just really special. It was like I was like, God, there's so much depth to this woman because how could that card even come out in the first place, and how could it be so relevant, and how could you just nail the meaning behind the card so well? <laughs> the dog, oh, and, you know, oh um, yeah, the bridge, well, yeah. Like you said, I mean, it's like I talk all of the, you know, about being alone and being alone out there. But, but in fact, you know, my trip was also so punctuated, you know, it was these long stints alone. And then it was punctuated by these, yeah, amazing meetings with these crazy outback characters. And, and the town that I live in now, you know, that I said, oh, what a weird town. I wonder why people live here. One of the things that my trip really taught me was do not judge a book by its cover because, there was a lot of characters that I came across and at first I was kind of a little bit oh, not sure or, you know, they had a certain, you know, look to them and and I learnt that really humanity is wonderful. Most of the people I met along the way had absolute hearts of gold and people took me in and helped me an amazing amount. And, um, yeah, Phyllis was, was one of those great characters. She was tough as nails and she lives alone along the dog fence which runs along the Queensland New South Wales border and um, she's a dog fence worker so she patrols that bit of fence line and makes sure that there's no gaps in the fence that dogs are going to go through and she she'll shoot a dingo or a wild dog whatever you want to call it if you if she sees one but you know living alone in a place like that hundreds of k's from anyone you got to be super resourceful and and she was a resourceful woman and I pulled up and I stayed there and you know what she she, she I reckon she could drink most men under a table <laughs> 
and you know she had a beer in hand and we got into you know the beers and having a barbecue and everything and then the next day I stepped into her house and I thought I would never have pictured this because inside her house was all these figurines of witches and wizards and and she had this totally other side to her which I loved and, and I just couldn't help myself I said Phyllis could you give me a tarot card reading? And she did. And, and yeah, like you said, it, it was amazing. And I, I don't know, I always take these things with a grain of salt. Maybe I did deduce the meaning of this tarot card from the situation that was already taken place. But I, I, I like what I came up with and I, and I still stand by it was that she drew this card that was um, this scene and it was, it had a, God, if I can try and remember it, it had a, a prince and a princess Oh, no, there was a prince on the other side of this bridge going over this river, sort of like a dark, handsome, classic-looking prince, and, and then this princess on the other side. And Phyllis said, you know, like, what do you see when you look at this card? And I thought, well, the obvious thing, the obvious thing is to say that, you know, you see the prince. As I think it was a card to do with love. But actually the first thing I noticed being an animal person was the dog in the background of the card. And it reminded me so much of I'd always thought with Jimmy, he was such a puppy in a way in like in his his absolute love of life and his enthusiasm for absolutely anything. And it was kind of like he wasn't the dark, handsome prince necessarily in the card, but he was this lovable dog. And that was the first thing that I looked at. And, and the loyalty as well, the loyalty of a dog, you know, he had followed me everywhere. Yeah. I mean, you... <laughs> Just like you said before, we're talking about a trip that was supposed to, an adventure that was supposed to take one year. And it was through the absolute necessity to surrender to the things that you hadn't foreseen that it took two. But what two remarkable divides there were in that whole experience. I just think it couldn't have played out any other way. That's the way it had to be for you. It just mm. makes so much sense. And it didn't make sense to you at the time. Like you said, it was probably frustrating. But God, you know, like in hindsight, and then the fact that you get to write the book and piece it all together yourself. It's like, geez, life has these mysterious ways of taking us on these adventures and it knows exactly where it's taking us, but we have no idea and it sucks for us. Totally. And I think one of Phyllis's cards that she pulled actually during this, you know, the tarot card reading was a card on trust. And I know it's one of those things, it's, it's so easier said than done, you know, you know, trust in, you know, life, you know, putting things in place, which it does. It always, it always, always does. But us as humans, we, we fight against that going, can't see, I can't see where I'm going. This doesn't make sense. Why is this happening? Why is the world doing this to me? And it always works out for the best. And I, yeah, and I, I remember walking and having that sort of realisation that in hindsight, there were so many little factors that had cropped up that I thought, man, that's annoying. Like, why did this have to happen? You know, why did it have to get so hot? And I had to like start getting up at super early in the morning and walking in the dark. And then in hindsight, I was like, actually, that was some of the most beautiful moments of the trip was walking a night alone with the camels. I could have been really annoyed that like I got that a big desert storm swept through and all of my equipment got wet and the camels were muddy and everything like that. But you know, in hindsight, that was the best thing because the country got brought back to life and there was all this amazing feed for the camels. So there were so many times, you know, even COVID at the beginning of the trip, you know, I thought it stopped 
anyone from coming to see me. I'd hoped at the beginning of my trip that, that friends would come and join me and, you know, I had enough camels that people might be able to come along for a month here and there. But it was almost like, you know, life, the universe, whatever you want to call it, was saying, no, you need to do this first half of the journey on your own, completely on your own, bar the characters you meet on the way, you know, you're having no support here. Whereas, like you said, the second half of my journey was the complete opposite. The second half opened it up to, you know, COVID restrictions had lifted and and then I met Jimmy and I had that interaction with him coming to visit me and to the point where then, you know, right at the end of the trip, he actually joined me for the last two months and helped with all the logistics of, of getting me and the camels safely through the traffic to the end. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so wild. Yeah, you can't plan these stories, hey? No, <laughs> you can't. You can't. And, and you know, one of the first questions that I wrote down on my little notepad here was, I, I wanted to ask you, okay, and especially because Lucy was like, "Whatever you do, don't ask why." And so I was like thinking to myself, okay, okay, it's got to be okay. It's got to be deeper and more meaningful than why. Okay, think, think. And I was like, but it actually came so naturally. I was just thinking to myself, and it came early on because it was actually quite early on where you talk about, well, it's actually probably the first part of the book where you talk about, and you reference a part that you'll talk about later in the book, but it was a part where your camels ran away. And I just, I wanted to, I thought I wanted to ask you if you believe in miracles. Oh, that's a, that's an, interesting question um i don't know i guess it depends on yeah what you mean by miracles i think let me also say that i when i was taking notes later down the track i labeled murdoch miracle murder yes yeah yeah (laughs) wasn't wasn't he a miracle worker in a way um yeah absolutely you know i think it's it's like we said i guess it's 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 sometimes I do and I don't, I don't know, maybe personally I don't think about it so much as like a higher power or anything. But, but yeah, like I said, life, the universe, how, whatever you resonate with, I think it puts those things into play that are going to be the right things for you. And whether you call it a miracle, you know, that my camels stopped when they bolted and, and took all my gear with them or was it just an amazing life lesson that was thrown my way? But I think like like we were just talking about, I think, yeah, life just has this incredible way of giving us the things, the, the tools or the lessons that we needed at the time. And again, you know, at this point in time when the camels took off on me, I was really naive, you know, as I think I was for, you know, probably the, the whole first part of my trip. I had packed all of the gear onto their backs and then when they spooked at something, they took off with everything I needed to survive strapped to their backs and I was left with basically nothing. So that was a massive wake-up call and I think, you know what, looking back on it now, which, of course, everything is, you know, everything makes sense in hindsight, but I think that was the wake-up call that I needed going forward from there I wasn't really taking how dangerous the trip could be seriously and then in a in a way Murdoch was the next wake up call for that too because I met him right before I'm heading out into the desert and yeah you know to reveal another part of the book he is 
uh, another spoiler alert, he, he is this guy who was living on, on this station right on the edge of the desert and he was actually an ex-sniper and it was as I was coming into the desert, I there, I knew there was going to be big issues going out there. Uh, one of the things was going to be wild bull camels coming in and um, not so much attacking my herd of camels but, yeah, basically causing trouble trouble to the point where yeah they they would be fighting with my camels or or trying to mate my camels and and that could become really dangerous for them and then me because my camels are my lifeline and I was really didn't really know what I was doing with my rifles and then you know magically (laughs) along came miraculously uh, one might say this miraculously uh, along came this this guy um you know, positioned into my trek right at the perfect time when I was heading out there into the desert. And he was this ex-sniper and he gave me all of this incredible information about teaching me how to use my guns and how to breathe when I was shooting and where to shoot on a camel. And and it was all of this, you know, and, and, and God, he was Again, never judge a book by its cover. You know, he was a little rough around the edges. He was a bit of a sort of stern, serious guy, and I wasn't quite sure about him at first, but he was the most helpful person I met along the whole trip. And he, having come from this army background, he was able to teach me. He sort of was able to to strip down the basics of survival, and he walked me through everything that I needed to carry on my person if that was to happen again, if the camels were to take off again. And he ingrained in me so many things that I would call back on when I was out there alone in the desert. Uh, Every day when I would get up and start walking, I would sort of pat myself and I'd be like, okay, I've got my pocket knife on me. I've got a lighter in my pocket in case I need to start a fire. I've got the sat phone on me. I've got my camel back with some water on my back. Uh, and I've got the EPIRB on my belt. And every day that was ingrained from Murdoch having taught me those things and making sure that I had that on me at all times. And then when I came to having to, you know, do the unfortunate task of shooting a wild camel out there, it was the same thing. It was kind of like, okay, Murdoch's talking you this, stabilise the gun, breathe, breathe, don't shoot too soon. And all of this stuff came back. If you haven't already, find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or TikTok, where you can catch additional content and grace us with your thoughts. Thanks again, and enjoy the rest of the episode. That's right, everyone. You're listening to a woman who has shot a wild camel in the middle of Outback Australia. There's a global audience here that you're going out to, by the way. Outback (laughs) is a foreign concept to these people. (laughs) You are going to seem like some kind of incredible superwoman to people listening right now and you like you kind of are like the the fact that you've gone through with this adventure you had the idea you've seen it through and then that trust element and yes we'll call it the universe why not i believe in the universe and i believe in that you get given the tools and and things that you need at the at the time when you, you most need them in life i also don't think you get those tools until you take that leap of faith as well like the leap of faith happens first, the tools come mm. after, and yeah, I'm not sure if you're surprised with how much of a recollection I'm having of of the book, but there's just so many moments that just stood out to me as like, wow, this is a moment. I, I need to stop what I'm doing right now and take notes on this because, and Murdoch was really one of those. You know, I don't know how it would have gone for you without that meeting. Like, I really, yeah, I, I struggle to imagine. 
Like, obviously, you've made it that far. So I want to believe that you'll make it the rest of the way. But also, I find it really difficult to imagine without that training. Yeah, a hundred percent. And like I said, you know, it was just it was it was constant through the whole of that that three month walk across the desert that was that was really testing it was just constantly remembering all of these words of wisdom you know that he'd given me just in in such a in such a practical you know survival sense but yeah it was it was such a crucial meeting yes and then also while I was chatting to Lucy she said oh you might not know this but Sophie went back and did the whole thing again like on a postie bikes or something like that <laughs> Yes, Lucy's right. I know I'm crazy enough to go back and do the whole thing again. And that was even, you know, that was it. It might not seem as sort of like glorious and romantic as camels, but it was actually in a way more terrifying to me than the camel trip because I had never ridden a motorbike in my life. <laughs> so I launched into this completely foreign thing. Yeah, so it, it came about. I want to say it came about by practical means in in a weird way, um, although I don't know that a posty bike trip ever really comes about by practical means. <laughs> but uh, Jimmy and I were discussing, so I had left, like I was saying, I had driven this truck from Uluru with my camels to the coast of Sharp Bay to begin this journey, and then I left the truck that I trucked the camels with over on one of the stations. And... You know, like like we talked about originally, I thought that the trip would just take me a year and I thought I'd go back and I'd collect the truck in a year's time. But then the trip took two years and then there was COVID and, you know, WA didn't open its borders for ages. So this this livestock truck that I had was still sitting on this station on the coast of Western Australia. So it became this mission that Jimmy and I concocted that we had to go and pick up this truck and get the truck back. So Jimmy and I thought, well, most normal people, I guess, would fly to Western Australia to pick up a truck. I guess that seems normal. But we were like, oh, why not make a bit more of an adventure of it? And uh, we thought, well, I guess we could drive over. But then we've got a truck and a car. So then we thought, well, what about motorcycles? We could ride over on a motorcycle and then we could put the motorcycle on the back of the truck. Only problem was that was neither of us had motorcycles and you had to ride motorcycles pretty much. And uh, so we came up with a simpler motorcycle and that was a postie bike, um, which is, yeah, basically, you know, just a small low powered. And when I say a postie bike for anyone who doesn't know, they like the little red motorbikes that people used to deliver the mail on before they went to these electric things with three wheels now that you see that the yeah, postman in. With shades but the, on the them. old the old fashioned ones. Yeah. The post Yeah, bike. yeah, yeah. The it's, new ones have that shade cloth. Yeah. Yeah. It's a thing here in Australia, but for the foreign listeners, just imagine a little very, very low powered motorbike. Yeah, exactly. So which then makes going across uh, the Nullarbor, which is one of Australia's longest and most remote roads, a very sort of slow affair and also a very um, vulnerable affair too because you're being passed on the road by all these triple and even quad road trains, these huge trucks, which are disturbing all the wind. And I had no idea about this until I learned to ride the bike, which, which um, let me just tell you, I learned to ride the bike on the trip itself. It was the first time I'd ever been, well, like, I mean, we did some, a couple of little practice 
you know, test rides just literally around our town of 50 people out on the dirt tracks. And then it was like the first day we did any highway driving was when we set off. So I was, I was um, seriously, seriously green. And you think the muesli thing was me pointing out the craziest part? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, maybe that's maybe that's crazier. I, it was really embarrassing. I remember the day that we left, and we're, you know, it, it's really cute actually because I live in this town of fifty people. Everyone hears about everyone's stuff that's going on, and so people we'd been telling people that we we're going on this posty bike trip, and and so the whole community is getting excited about about this trip, and they'd helped us with you know getting a milk crate here and like helping some mechanical stuff there with Jimmy and. Um, and so the day that we went to set off, a few of the community members had come round to our house to sort of wave us off and wish us goodbye. And um, the posty bikes have these kickstarts, like the old traditional motorbike kickstarts. And I couldn't start my bike on my own. I just couldn't get it to start. And so I had to get Jimmy to start my bike for me. You know, when there's like half the town there waving us off. I couldn't even start my own bike to set off on this adventure. It had to be started for me. And then I sort of wobbled out the driveway with two milk crates of possessions stacked up behind and, and we were off. Yeah, wow. I mean, I can't imagine it's the most embarrassing thing you've, <laughs> you've gone through. I'm sure it was very embarrassing, but I mean, you have had camel cud, you know, like literally spat. <laughs> <laughs> All over my face. Yeah. That's, that's, that is true, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, the truck was the truck was recovered and uh, and the truck came home. So it was it was mission complete in the end. And so I guess you didn't go through that whole thing the same through the same route, right? You, you've chosen a more logical, like it needed to be roads. Yeah, yeah. So we did. So when I walked with my camels, um, for anyone sort of looking on a map, basically Shark Bay on the coast of WA is about about halfway down and I pretty much walked in as much of a straight line as I could from Shark Bay uh, across to Byron Bay which sort of takes you I don't know let's say the bottom third of the of the country across it's not right across the middle but it's a little bit further down and when I went on the posty bikes it's sort of right down south so the Nullarbor Plain runs along the Great Australian Bight which is this huge beautiful cliff line on the southern ocean there but when I picked up the truck it was actually it was great because I we, we jumped in the truck and um, the truck actually doesn't go any faster than the posty bikes pretty much. So it was, it was no speed improvement picking that, that up because it's an old 1980s truck. But we drove a little bit the way of where I went with the camels and we dropped in on a lot of those lovely people that I met along the way. Um, yeah, including catching up with Murdoch and uh, people like that. So, so there's a lot of people that are in, in the book that I still keep in contact with and still, you know, go to see whenever, whenever I can. Yeah, that's really special actually when I was thinking about that is that, you know, you go through the adventure, whatever it is that you've gone through, whether it's whatever you've been through or someone else doing a completely different adventure and then being able to revisit it in a different way and visit the people that you met and serendipitously as well you met these people you hadn't necessarily planned to meet like we talked about before with miracle miraculous mm. murdoch right you know it, it was it was spontaneous it was serendipitous and and, and therefore the hello was not necessarily a, a 
a warm welcome, hello. And the goodbye was kind of like a almost lackluster in a way. Like, okay, well, it's been great to meet you. Might see you again sometime kind of thing. And so I, I love the idea that you've gone back and retraced some of the steps, or certainly some of the people, because I feel like it's not until you can come back to where you've been that you can A, appreciate how far you've come, but also consolidate like the grandeur of that initial thing that you did. It kind of puts it all into perspective. Yeah. Even running it back on a motorbike. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And, and and touching on that, I had this I had this really haunting experience, I guess, where I was, you know, and I'm going to sound a bit esoteric here again probably, but um, <laughs> where I was coming back in the truck with with Jimmy and, you know, a lot of along the way I was trying to I was trying to pick out as we drove exactly where I had camped in the bush, you know, because sometimes I, I was, you know, we're taking a lot of dirt roads in the truck and sometimes I had camped, you know, next to these these roads, although there was probably less people on them at the time with COVID. And, yeah, we I, I found this camp and it was getting towards sunset in the truck and we thought let's pull up and we'll camp at this spot that I had camped with the camels. And I found everything there. It was like, you know, a hundred percent like stepping back in time. I could, I, you know, I, I pinpointed the exact bushes I tied the camels up to. I found some of their old dried camel poo, you know, you could almost make out where I'd lit the, lit the fire. And, um, and it was a camp spot right before I, I think it was, it was actually right before I even, oh no, it was just after I met Murdoch and it was just before I was setting off into the great Victoria desert. And it was, that was a real moment in time of of feeling like, whoa, I've got this this huge challenge, this huge three months crossing going out into this into the most remote part of my journey on my own. And I was feeling very daunted at the time, even though I had met Murdoch and I, you know, he'd he'd filled me with some some amount of confidence, but I was still really nervous heading off. And then to to revisit that in the truck. And stand in that exact spot knowing that I had done it and I'd accomplished it. And I was standing there with Jimmy and feeling like, yeah, I've, I've done that. It was, it was a real sort of, I don't know how else to describe it. It was a real haunting moment of like, whoa, I wish that my now self could tell myself back then it's going to be okay and you're going to make it, you know, and you can do this. Yeah, it was it was it was a strange and you know emotional moment visiting that camp. Yeah, we do want to reconnect with our past self at times in our own minds. We want to go back and go, hey, mm. listen, it's everything's going to be okay. And I can imagine that there would be no more of a time than anyone would want to do that than when they were once standing just facing the endlessness of a desert, thinking, "Am I going to get through this?" Like. Yeah, it's just mm. a wild concept mm. to think that you that we relate to ourselves as well like that that we can yeah it's a real consolidation I think I'm mm. just glad that you did that because I feel without yeah. having done that there's something missing yeah it's interesting though you know I thought originally when I was going to do that WA trip with the posty bikes I thought that it might actually I had wanted to go and do that trip before I started writing the book because I thought, oh, it would be great to bring back memories of the trip. And then, like I said, because of COVID, you know, WA took ages to open its borders and, and I got the got the book deal and, and I had to start writing before we did that trip. And again, in hindsight, I know we've spoken a lot about hindsight, but again, in hindsight, I'm actually really glad that I did write it before I revisited that whole part of the journey 
because when you go back, I think, you know, it, it's never the same as when you were first there. You know, other people might get this feeling, you know, when you travel somewhere and you have these amazing memories of travelling to that place the first time, then you go back again, you're like, oh, it's just not the same. And it wasn't that it was any worse or any better, but it, it was just I was a different person on that mission with the camels and I, you know, the, the circumstances and the people that I came up against were all wrapped up in that journey. And so because of that, I had that particular experience of each place. And so then when I revisited with the, you know, the safety of having a truck and being in a vehicle and having, you know, my partner by my side and the comfort of all that, those places took on a different and those people took on a different meaning that wasn't the same. And so I'm glad that I actually just had to rely purely on my memory of the first time that I went across that area for the book. Yeah, and that, you know, the second time you met those people, they got to meet a Sophie that wasn't in as big a fight or flight kind of, you know, mindset or, mm. you know. Yeah, exactly. Neuro set or whatever you would call it. But yeah, I also mm. reflect back on the book and listening to you say things like... Um, listening to you say things like you didn't narrate it by the way but it felt like you that oh that's good <laughs> re reflecting on the camels and how far they had come and you and you did that a couple of times and i found myself thinking geez i wonder what the camels would say about you and how far you've come in a way if they could talk <laughs> I know. I always had this feeling sometimes that it was, uh, and I think I do talk about this in the book, that it was that sometimes the camels must just think that they're just on their own, you know, at times fun or big adventure and that who's this strange human that's following us along and that, that thinks she has control of the situation here? What's she doing constantly tagging along with us? You know, I was the minority there, really. Yeah, you were. And I love the idea that you were a family and you talk about them like a family. You know, they, you talk about them as having their own personalities and, and, you know, that you relied on each other for, you know, your own safety and for survival and things like that. And the songs that you named them after, like Delilah, for example. And, you know, I really feel like your journey was one where you didn't just throw sort of caution to the wind a little bit as far as you know heading out into the desert but that you put this trust and faith into this relationship with these non-human beings and that a large part of the adventure was figuring out the nuts and bolts of how that relationship was going to pan out you know so underestimated yeah and if I look back on it you know I think that was always a goal or part of that bigger question of why was I wanted to train my own camels. I wanted to have that relationship with my own camels. I don't think I would have done the trip if I could have, you know, gone out and hired someone else's camels or just paid for camels that were fully trained. I wanted that whole experience of taking an animal basically from the wild, watching it develop, for want of a better word, into, you know, a domesticated animal and that relationship of human-animal develop between us. And like you said you know, discover their personalities through that, be able to, to watch them take on new situations constantly. Um, and it's such a, it's such a, it is, it's such a proud moment to see them progress in a way that you just never thought was possible. And for, yeah, for me, that was one of the absolute joys and beauty of the trip. And like I said, I, I, I don't, I don't think I could have done the journey full stop without camels. It just wouldn't have interested me to tow a cart across Australia. I mean, for some people, it 
absolutely does and that's totally fine. But for me, it, it was very much about having the relationship with those animals. Yeah, there's so much innateness in what you say because I can imagine for some people it just wouldn't make sense. It just wouldn't make sense that you that you just caught them from the wild. Like why didn't you get pre-trained, and you know, camels out of a can, so to speak. But yeah, I mean, it may not have made sense at the time, but it feels to me like it, it kind of did make a lot of sense that you that you need to learn them from the get-go and that that's the whole part of relying on these these animals part of me when you really need them in a life what their situation is that you know how they're likely to behave to mm. a certain extent mm. and then yeah. there's the reality of what yeah when you're at that. yeah and it definitely and it's such a it brings in that element i think that on your own you don't have an on an adventure, but it brings in that that sense of being a team and being being a leader in a in a way. You know, it, it's sort of funny my trip. I guess in in some ways it's 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 a journey of doing it alone, but it's another in another sense it's a journey of doing it as a team really, and and having to be a leader. And I think that was another one of the lessons I probably got from from the trip is having to be a good leader to the camels and having to make those decisions in terms of, you know, where we stop for camp and, you know, how we take on any particular scenario, you know, no one else is going to make those decisions. I have the responsibility of their welfare on my shoulders. And yeah, that was, that was a big, a big learning curve, I think is um, I had heard from lots of camel men and, and it's such a true um, camel men and camel women. It's such a true saying that, you know, look after your camels and they will look after you. And it was always taught to me with animals that always the animal comes first, always look after them first. You know, you can't, there would never be a time that I would pull up at camp and I would have something to eat or put the billy on or, or chill out if they weren't unsaddled. They had to be unsaddled. It was the first thing, you know, when we get to camp, they're unsaddled straight away they're let off to graze straight away because it's all about looking after them. Yeah, such wholesome values that have carried you through this whole adventure and a lot of really great learnings and meetings that you had with Indigenous cultures as well that are really in their essence about the path of least resistance between man and nature and how to work with and not against. So many beautiful parts of your adventure that I just reflect on and have been throughout this entire week and it's kind of like <laughs> surreal sitting here talking to you as well. It's just sitting here going, gosh, What? It's too soon, too soon. I just finished the book. <laughs> I wasn't ready for this. Um, but yeah, like you said, you're in a town now of 50 people. What's it called? Uh, I'm in a little town called Copley. Um, Never in heard of South, it. South Australia. I know, I know. No, it's, it's, it's in the northern Flinders Ranges. So to give you context in terms of landscape, because I like to talk about the landscape so much, is um, the Flinders Ranges basically run from where you're talking about down in Port Augusta. And they carry on north, this big long line of ranges. And where I live now is like at the end of that line of the range. So it's really beautiful actually when I go out to see the camels now in their, in their now forever paddock or forever home, I drive over the hills, these bare rocky hills, and you can see out from the hills where it just goes all of a sudden just dead flat. And that dead flat gibber landscape, that heads all the way out to – uh, Lake Eyre up in the north of us. So 
so yeah, that's to give you give you an idea of the landscape out here. And I think one of the things that really you know was constantly that you played to and, and you referred to throughout the book was you know like this choice and this sacrifice of the normal life and the, the you know the thing that your, your old friends from high school that you still see on Instagram having families and kids and stuff you know is but it felt to me at the end of the book that there was a, a, a piece that you'd made with that and I'm not sure if I was hearing it correctly because I was also hearing the end of the book on double time just just FYI and uh <laughs> ne- I never listened to audiobooks on oh I didn't time. even know you could do that yeah yeah it's full-on audible is crazy you can see that would it. that would speed up a that would speed up a 3k an hour trek I was desperate to finish it before I was setting up my equipment and <laughs> I um yeah, and then I thought to myself, can you come back from something like this and feel satisfied? Yeah, that's what I wanted. Be satisfied with where you are now. Yeah. Oh, that's a that's a really good question. I think because there's a I think that there's not that much spoken about the ending of adventures. You know, everyone wants to talk about the adventure itself. Obviously, that's the highlight. That's the big. That's the big thing that you know you're there to talk about with everyone. But the only thing that you ever get asked is then a lot of you know people, and I'm sort of referring to the media, I guess, will then ask you what's next, which is also another sort of terrifying question. But yeah, it's it's a strange like the ending of an adventure is a strange thing because there's actually a lot of sadness I think that comes in finishing a big trip. You know, it's consumed your life for such a long period of time and I'm not just talking about in the adventure phase itself but in all of that planning phase too. So it's a real ending when it comes to an end and it can be slightly heartbreaking and it's like, you know, when you've, I'm going to bring in another, you know, travel example, but when you've gone on this amazing trip overseas or something like that and then you, then you come back to, to just, you know, life and it can be, there can be definitely a come down from it. And then also sort of a trying to find out who am I outside of this trip? Who am I outside of being the girl who walked across Australia with camels? And yeah, I think it's something, yeah, you know, I guess there's, there's this notion of a big trip like this changing you and you do learn lessons from it. I don't think that I'm a necessarily a different person at the end of it than I was from beginning it. But I think you're constantly learning those lessons and constantly trying to sort of, you know, work out where your place is in life and, you know, where the next bunch of breadcrumbs might be and which way life's going to lead you. So going back to your question, what was your your question was, do you think that you're ever satisfied afterwards? You know what? I don't is know. That what, what was it? I, I really struggled with that question, so I landed <laughs> on satisfied. You yeah. encapsulated what I was trying to say really well in that response. But then, yeah, the satisfaction bit. Obviously, there's a bit where you pat yourself yeah. on the back and go, hmm, well done me. I don't, I think you're always, I think that's just, you know what, human nature is the, in a way we're never satisfied. It's a terrible thing. You know, and I would love to look back on any part, you know, and go, oh, that was great. And I guess there is a little, of course, I do look back on my on my camel trip and, and I think that was a fantastic experience. But, you know, isn't it just that human nature of constantly wanting more and that, yeah, that what's next, what's the big adventure now that I've done that? I don't feel I need to top it in any way. Like there's this some sort of thought that it's like, oh, well, what are you going to do now? You've gone across Australia, you know, 
west to east are you going to go north to south or whatever and and um i'd love to get back out there in, in the deserts with those camels but i don't feel like it has to be bigger or better in any way it will be different and i'd like it to be different but yeah i think we are always a little bit attuned to constantly be seeking more and um it's it's always a life lesson of being present in what you're whatever you're in it i guess at this point in time and and loving that and being able to to look back on like you said being able to look back on a journey such as that and have a real appreciation of making it all it could have been at the time mm. Yeah, I really do like that attitude and perspective to it because just while you were talking, you talked about the whole topping it thing. I think that's so Australian as well. It's so Aussie to just want to top everything or do something for charity and next year it's got to be a bigger charity and a bigger amount raised and something larger and then... I was thinking back to my childhood, actually. I remember there was this long-distance swimmer. I'm not sure if you might recall it. And I, I don't remember her name. I think it might be something like Susie Maroney or something like that. Kind of rings a bell. She used to just do these epic long-distance swims, like from Cuba to you know, Florida or something like that, or, the, or Mexico. Mm. And I feel like, in a way, after listening to you just talk about, you know, the idea of having to top yourself, that I feel like she was a victim of that whole, oh, what's next kind of thing. And then maybe not just going, hmm. You know, I'm kind of done and, and that was pretty good to have achieved that first thing. Why do I need to top it? Because I think towards yeah. the end, it was like three or four swims or something. And then she just kind of burnt out and it was like mid-swim, one of those swims. And it was just like covered in jellyfish bites and stuff like that. And it's just like, why are you going through this? Didn't you do some epic swim across the English Channel not long ago? Like, wasn't that enough? Mm, yeah, yeah. When will it be enough? Yeah. I know, yeah, that that question of, of, you know, what's next? I think that, you know, I, I don't know whether other adventure, I'm sure like Lucy will get asked that, you know, at the end of her trip, it's such a, it's such a, a media, like after the why, then it's the what's next. Um, it's such a media prone question. And yeah, like you said, it's, there's also, you know, there's such a period of time, like there's a huge lead up to any adventure. Like I was saying, in terms of the planning, I almost go back to like my film days and I call it like pre-production and then you have production and then you have post-production and I think about the phase that I'm almost in now as a bit of post-production in a way because there is a big wind down from a trip too and you know even to the point where like I remember on the on the final day when I hit the beach at Byron everyone's kind of going how do you feel well it's this you know it's this big day and already in my head I was starting to think about like it didn't really feel like the trip had ended because there were so many logistics to be sorted out post-trip that in my head I was already two or three steps ahead thinking about, okay, well, I've got to get the camels. I've got to find a new truck because I still can't pick up my old truck from WA. So now we've Jimmy and I have got to find a new truck and now we've got to make sure that that's the proper height for the camels because no truck is ever high enough for these huge animals that you're transporting you know, and then we've got to somehow work out, you know, how we're going to get them on the truck. And then we've got to get them to their new paddock back in the, you know, back in the Flinders. So this, there was so many logistics to even finishing the trip that it was like the day that I hit the beach in Byron, I was already 10 steps ahead of that. That wasn't the end. You know, there was already so much more to end. And even now it's sort of carried on in a way in terms of writing the book in terms of doing the media that accompanied the book. So there's been a, a, a this huge amount in this post-production phase. 
this huge amount of reflection that's happening on the trip. So in a way it goes on and, and I guess at some point it will end. I guess at some point it will fizzle out, but you know, it will, I mean, actually, no, I'm going to say that I don't think it will ever fizzle out. I think it will always still be there as, as this thing that I've done. I don't think there's any definite ending to it. And you know what, there might be a time too that, yeah, you do just want to take a break. Even last year, I remember, you know, people are sort of saying, oh, so what, you know, what are you going to do with the camels? And I just went through this, this phase when I was writing the book and I loved going out to see the camels in, in their paddock and they were just sort of worming around eating bushes and getting incredibly fat. But I, I didn't feel like I wanted to touch them. I didn't want to do any more camel treks. I didn't want to have anything to do really with the camels hands on because I just burnt myself out in the doing of that trip that I just needed a break from it. And that's okay too, you know, is being able to let an adventure go in that way. Yeah. I'm sorry, I, I don't know. I probably sound like I'm rambling on about no, that. I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> no, 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 no. And it's like it's a question about the current. It's like I'm asking you to reflect on right now as well when I when I say those things. So, you know, I'm mindful that you're just coming off the back and still in a book tour, you know, that this is your life. It's very fresh for people. I believe you finished uh, on the 23rd of January or la- ended up in Byron Bay on the 23rd of January 2022, right? Uh, uh, the end of de- December. It was December 2021. So yes, yeah, close, yeah. Yeah, I was I was on double speed again. You know, like it. <laughs> but... I think it was probably it would have been February 2022 when when I arrived in the Flinders Ranges uh-huh. to yeah to move here. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's not that long ago. So again, it's it, mm. it is it's probably a bit too soon for you to reflect and to understand what it's all been about and what it all means. But if anything, I mean, it was really great that part in the book where you know you got a lot of the, those letters from your old high school and those year nine students to help put it into perspective. And I'm sure that's continuing on. Those students are probably in year twelve by now, or maybe even starting university you've inspired some people and although that wasn't the goal of any of this at all and oh god that word inspired has so many connotations as well that is just like ugh, do i even want to talk about that because i never want to necessarily do something to inspire other people but i do want to you know know mm. that what i've done it's got so many cheesy connotations it does, i know it, what you mean it does but it's nice to know that what you've done and i think you had that moment with those letters it's nice to know that what you've done has touched someone in a meaningful way and that 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 meaningful mm. way that they've been touched is their thing it's not on you it's their thing and it's lovely that you your thing was able to be the catalyst for that thing that's theirs and so yeah i, I think it's it's nice that you'll always have have that and yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but I'm trying just trying to reflect, you know, because I was listening to you talk about, oh, what's the next thing? And in a really similar but not so similar way, I wrote a children's book once, and the, that was like an odyssey as well. It took me five years to complete the thing from when I had the idea to when I fully published it. It was five and a half years. And I remember being mm. at, the, at the at the launch for that book, and it was a big deal because you know I'd never written a book before. I certainly had never planned to illustrate it, but I had. Then I did, mm. and then the whole illustration of it was a whole adventure and learning experience for me. So by the time I'm launching it, I'm there at the launch, and people are like, "Oh, great! What's your next book going to be?" And I'm like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" Yeah. Like, listen. <laughs> let me just let me just have my moment here. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, 
you know. Uh, been... Yeah, I know. I think in that ending phase, you know, it's it's you know, it's just this. It's been this huge thing. It's really hard to turn around and go like, oh yeah, straight back in again. You know. I mean, always I'm such a sort of person that constantly is my mind's ticking on the next adventure and what I could one day do. So it's definitely that there has not been any more thought of adventures. There's a long list back in my in my brain of all these different amazing trips that I would like to do. The camels on the Silk Road and a couple of horse trips too. And yeah, there's lots. But um, I know from having done this one that there's a, a huge amount of planning that goes in and and that like I said right at the beginning you know once you start actively planning and you get past that phase of just dreaming and you you put that put the motions into play and um, you're jumping on that treadmill and that treadmill will keep on going until you reach the start line of that adventure so I'm careful to not jump on that treadmill just yet yeah probably extra careful than you would have been the first time around And, and I love how you know way back when we started this recording and I know I've taken a lot of your evening um, but you talked about the naivety that comes with with doing this and, and the fact that that naivety is almost an asset of yours because had you been more aware of certain things, it may have stifled the whole idea of golf going forward with the adventure or led to extra planning that by the time COVID comes about, yeah. was then you're put to a grinding halt because you can't take off on it anymore. So I think that whilst you're so much more experienced now and that you know you you obviously need some time to chill and settle and relax and of course there's this adventure bug that's always going to be sort of nagging at you um how do you not lose the naivety that sort of keeps something fresh Mm. yeah and throws you into that deep end that makes the adventure the adventure Yeah. Well, that's, and that's why like each thing I think has to be different because that naivety, as soon as you pick something that you go, you know, like I said, like the posty bikes, it's like, I've never ridden a motorbike before, really. You know, like you've got to pick those things that go, I'm a little bit scared, but I'm also thinking about this thing with this romantic vision. You know, I don't know whether all adventurers are like a romantics, but I think that they're, I think that that is an element of play in adventure because when you come up with these ideas, you think of, say, Lawrence of Arabia, you know, astride his camel going through the desert. We think about all of the of the beautiful moments and we don't think about those day-to-day struggles and that day-to-day boredom even that creeps in. And you have to keep that vision in mind because, like I said, you know, that romantic vision is so, so important because that will keep you striding towards the start line. You can deal with all of that hardship when you're in it. <laughs> You'll get to that point, trust me. But, yeah, that, that romantic vision, that love for, for wanting to go on that adventure, that will keep you on that treadmill heading for the start line. Yeah, I'm just imagining the Lawrence of Arabia, like 70-piece orchestra playing that tune, that iconic tune, you know, <laughs> as the film begins and then suddenly getting cud spat in your face and it just going... Yeah, that's right, the reality. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, it's been... Honestly, one of the highlights of my early podcasting career to speak to a real life camel adventurer who's just coming out of the out of the back end of that adventure and the book tour as well. You've been so generous with your time with 
uh, you know, how you've been able to articulate everything to me, despite probably having done it a thousand times over the last few months or years even. Uh, oh, uh, thank you, Louis. No, I feel like you, I've, you've asked some questions that I have definitely gone down tangents that I've never been down before. So I, I really appreciate, you know, some of your deep questions because it's, it's, um, it's got me thinking and I've talked about it uh, definitely a fair few things that I don't think anyone else would have heard me talk about. Well, that's really nice. That's, that's really great feedback. And, you know, hopefully for your audience as well, it, it's a fresh listening experience for them too, because I'm mindful mm. that the people that follow you are like, yep, here comes another podcast. But yeah, I'm really glad to hear that, that they're going to have something new to listen to as well. And, you know, I, I do tend to end my episodes in the same way because I'm kind of just used to it by now. But God, I feel like there's so much advice just in your story. But I mean, what would you say to someone that is thinking about choosing that path between the family and the mortgage or that adventure? Would you say anything? Oh, um, gosh, I think there's no real rule book for life, is there? You know, I think it's very easy to look at it and, you know, and like I have done in the past and like I have with my book, you know, and I went, I'm missing out on what the standard is of getting married and having kids and and so on. But there's so many different life paths that we can take and they're all good in their own way. And I always think as well, you know, it doesn't get out there and do whatever adventure you can. It doesn't have to be a massive camel crossing of the country or it can be, or it can be, you know, a crossing of the world on on a push bike or it can be something as small as just stepping out and going for a bushwalk, you know, with your kids just get out there and and do anything that puts you in nature, pushes your boundaries too, pushes your your comfort zones. And but like I said, you know, hold on to that romantic vision beforehand and deal with the toughness when it gets to you, and that stuff will make you grow. I love it. Yeah, such good advice. You've been awesome. What a legend. Um, what a pleasure. And thank you to everyone who's stayed on us for this long. This is an absolute highlight of my time podcasting and. Yeah, I just want to say the biggest thank you from myself and my audience. Oh. And yeah. Thanks, Louis. Thank you for all your work on the show and, you know, getting people's stories told. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Sophie. We'd love to know what you thought of that episode of the Louis Diaz podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and even TikTok to let us know. And be sure to follow, subscribe, and leave us a review on Spotify where you can catch some of our other really great episodes. Thanks for listening and catch you next time.